fabulous, gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow S podcast. We're here to always chat about sex, sexuality, and the body. As usual, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find all sorts of weird and wonderful podcasts on politics, culture, society, and of course, me with sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It really does help to keep the mics on. Or if you feel like it, please pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to send me a DM, it's Glow West Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So today I'm talking to an amazing guest who has such huge experience in the area of supporting young people around sexual and reproductive health. Because of course, we all need as much help as we can get in those areas. My guest today is Lisa Dupochter, who is the Youth Ambassador for Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights, Gender Equality and Bodily Autonomy at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands. In that role, she gives advice on topics such as sexuality, contraceptions, contraceptives, education and more from a young person's lens. She brings in experiences from young people around the world to improve Dutch development policy, as well as her own experience as a reproductive rights activist and feminist. Lisa has a bachelor's in governance, economics and development and was an intern at the United Nations Population Fund before starting as youth ambassador last August. Lisa, thanks Mel, for joining us today on the podcast. How are you keeping? Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. I'm good. Very excited to, to be talking to you about my mandate today. Fab. Uh, you have um, a quite an important job. I would love if Ireland had a jobs like this. That, that <laughs> would be amazing. Um, talk to me first about how you got into that role. Yeah, it's actually a really one of a kind, this position. It's the, the only one, as far as I know, that exists in the world. Um I got into it last August um, through an, a normal, uh, you know, process for for finding a job, actually. But I did already know for quite a long time that I really wanted to get into something like this. Um, I've always been very passionate about sexual and reproductive health and rights, gender equality, and especially how they relate to young people and how young people can kind of stand up for those rights and also have a voice in the decisions that are being made about them uh, when it comes to those topics. So when I saw the vacancy for this for this position coming by, I was like, "This is for me. I have to. I have to get in here." Um, and that's kind of how things started rolling. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you spotted that at the right time. Then, <laughs> so yeah. that sounds like it was meant to be. So, so talk to me about what it actually involves doing, because you've got three different parts. You've got sexual and reproductive health and rights, gender equality, and bodily autonomy. So I suppose start with the sexual and reproductive aspect. What do you do in relation to that? Yeah, so um, I might just start and say how this position actually came into being because yeah. the Netherlands for a long time has actually been a really big forefighter uh, for sexual and reproductive health and rights, especially for women and young people. Um, we ha- really have a big track record in international policy spaces. And a couple of years ago, I feel like the government realized that they were pushing for that uh, policy and pushing for those rights. And they couldn't do that without actually having a young person involved in those conversations as well, right? I mean, you can have as many adults and experienced um, um, advocacy officers and policy leaders advising you on, on those topics, but you won't ever really get to uh, to the core if you don't really involve young people as well, young people as well. And so that's how this position came into being. Um, and so concretely what I do is on a daily basis, I talk, um, with young people from all over the world 
about what their experiences are and, and most of their challenges as well when it comes to uh, sexual rights and health. Um, and like buying contraceptives, what are their challenges and do they get the introduction and the and information they need when it comes to, to sexuality? And I take that back to the ministry, to the policy officers, so that they have a better image of what young people really need when it comes to these topics. Um, and that counts for, for SRHR, so sexual and reproductive health and rights, but also for gender equality and for bodily autonomy. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, what I what I do. Yeah, absolutely. They're all linked in together. There's no separating yeah. them really on that. And then what trends do you notice then that, that young people have around trying to access things like contraception? I suppose it, it changes from country to country as well. Um, and then age group to age group as well. And I'm sure some might feel more embarrassment than others that are trying to get things like condoms and things like that. So what, what do you see young people and their challenges are in getting that? Yeah, I think the main thing that we see a lot is that in a lot of um, um, low to middle income countries, actually, it's mostly the rural, um, the rural areas where young people are really having trouble accessing information that they need to make um, knowledgeable decisions about their bodies, about their lives, about who they engage with, right? And um, it's not that they don't want to. It's, and that's an, a really interesting thing that I see is that a lot of adults try to talk about young people as if they don't know how to make those choices or they don't know what they want. And the thing is they do know what they want. Um, they do know that they might want to start a family at some point or that they might want to be with someone for the rest of their lives and they might already have found that person. But the information to make knowledgeable um, choices about that is often very lacking. And to make that concrete, I think an example is that there are some countries in which you can't legally buy contraceptives unless you're married. Um, but you might be a 17 year old uh, and have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and, you know, you might want to have sex with that person and do it safely as well, but there's no legal way for you to obtain um, contraceptives. Or you might not even know uh, where to buy them because yeah. the information is just not being provided to you. That's what it and, was like in Irish society up to, you know, I think was it the 1970s or something? It was like literally only for married couples and the doctor basically decided like when you were done with your family. Yeah, no, exactly. And and that is some, that's a really big barrier to young people because the, what we see as well is that restricting them doesn't really help them in any single way. In fact, it actually makes the chances that someone might end up um, pregnant without wanting to a lot higher. And then what you also see is that the services to terminate a pregnancy or to even know how, how to deal with um, a pregnancy if, you don't, if you're uh, pregnant and you don't want to be are very limited and it really doesn't help. And so then if you're pregnant without wanting to be and you're looking for other services um, that might help you out there and they're not there, you're gonna be looking for, for other services that will help you uh, like backdoor um, abortions yeah, and, and which that leads is to every so yeah, many health exactly. problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and another thing that also relates to that and that is also a trend is that in a lot of countries, um, young people don't actually get the autonomy to make those choices, right? So they really depend on their parents. Um, they can't really obtain any information or services without a parent being involved. And so uh, if they really want to do something about their lives and, and take a sort of uh, the, the things in their own hands to plan their future, there's no way they can do that without a parent getting involved, even though they really want to. 
um, there's just no way. So those are some of the trends that I've I've seen over the past uh, years. Yeah. And that definitely contributes to that feeling of anxiety and, and lack of autonomy and things like that. Um, do you work with any particular countries that um, have a really great sex education program? I know, so you're Dutch and you're based in the Netherlands and usually they're viewed as, you know, a bit more progressive, certainly more than Ireland, I suppose, for some things. But would you would you hold the Dutch example up as a shining light in the field of sex education? Um. I always like to be critical, so I think there's always uh, space for improvement. I do definitely think that uh, we have a pretty good base and a pretty good model. Um, we have national law that says that all schools at some point have to talk about sexual diversity and and a little bit also about what it means to say no to someone, right? So kind of going to the direction of what is consent and how do you listen to what someone wants. Um, but at the same time, that sometimes is also just a box you have to take as a school so it really depends on the school whether they want to go into that or not uh, on a very deep uh, basis okay. so i i would say that the framework is there whether it's always carried out in the way that i'd like to see is another question yeah that's that's quite similar as well to the irish <laughs> approach as well at the moment it depends on school by school and teacher by teacher sometimes as well so yeah yeah. Do you know? Do you notice any particular patterns when it comes to sex education from the from the youths that you work with? Then of you know how do they how do they express what what they're being taught? Yeah. Um, so I've actually spoken to um, some some young people that really felt like what they were being taught was just not the the right thing that they were being taught. Right. So uh, sometimes it's very abstinence based, where the only thing that they ever hear is just don't have sex and you'll come out of it better. When obviously they are going to have sex and they're going to be exploring things in their lives with other people. Um, and so you'd rather that they do it safely, right? In an informed way. Um, and what you also see is that uh, kids get, if they do get sex education or sometimes you call it life skill ex education, that the school will split them up in the boys and the girls. So the boys get it separately from the girls, which really doesn't work at all because then the boys will never really get to learn anything about menstruation. Uh, which then also feeds into like social norms and, you know, if they don't know what it actually is about and what it means and to, to be everything. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And on the other hand, the girls don't really learn how to express to the boys what they want, what they don't, what it means to say no. Um, and yeah, the, the, the boundaries between things and the things that you can say to, to someone else are just completely blurred. Uh, and that really doesn't work. And And it's interesting because young people they do see this and they want to change this but they just don't get the, tool, the tools to, to do so um, and that can be really frustrating. Yeah it's hard to stand up against the whole system but what do you think then is still the justification for separating by gender because it it's just doesn't work and it doesn't work internationally and all the feedback is saying it doesn't work and yet we're still kind of clinging on to this idea we have to separate by gender. Yeah, and it, I think it, it stems from maybe a, a shame or an awkwardness that that teachers might have, right? So to, to have to talk about sex and and watch, um, if you're talking about heteronormative sex, that is, um, then you have to look at the classroom and look at all those people, right? And actually go more deeply into it. Whereas if you just take the boys apart, you don't even have to take, or the boys and the girls, you don't even have to talk about sex at all. You can just talk about, oh, well, this is what happens in your body and this is what happens in your body. But when they come together, you don't have to address that. So to me, it sounds like 
is really a way to avoid sort of that very concrete conversation about what it means to have sex. Um, but like I said, it's it's completely counterproductive. It really does not work. Yeah. Um, and we get and, those um, messages or like memes from guys who are like, just cross your legs and hold your period in. And it's like, that's not mm-hmm. how it works. And like, we might yeah. laugh at that and shame it. But like, that's a really like a result of actual, like, you know, people who don't menstruate. Like, that's a result of them not ever getting that education. So you can see where that comes from on some level. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's, yeah, it's so annoying. It just feels like we're just failing young people so much sometimes by, by doing this stuff. And I think, you know, in Ireland, a, a massive criticism of the sex education here for the longest time has been that it's very exclusive of people who aren't straight so it's very much when a man and a woman want to make a baby basically that's that's pretty Mm. much what 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 a lot of people get and there's no mention of queer relationships or of you know different genders or sexualities and it just like it's just not okay in 2021 but do you find that the young people that you work with pick up on that and they're they're feeling like this exclusion is really damaging them I think it's it's only recently that um, young people who aren't straight have been getting a platform uh, and have been able to speak out on on those kinds of things. Um, and that is why, as the Netherlands as well, we always advocate for comprehensive sexuality education, which is CSC for short. And that includes all the biological things and everything about your anatomy, but also so much more, right? It talks about consent. It talks about what it means to be sexually diverse and to have, or maybe, you know, what it means to also explore your sexuality and that you don't have to fit within that box. Um, But it's not always safe to talk about that in all the countries that we engage with, right? So there's a lot of young people that I've spoken to that live in countries where it's actually um, punishable by law to go to prison if you're openly gay or openly not straight in any way. And so to talk to those young people about their sexuality and to actually to provide them that information is very hard and very dangerous. And we always have to make sure that we take all the security measures to be able to give them that information while also not jeopardizing their own security. Um, and that makes it really tough to even get the conversation started about what it means to be queer um, and to also explore your sexuality as a queer person, right? So those, yeah, that is one of the biggest challenges that I would have seen. Uh, over the past couple of years when we're talking about sex ed yeah and, and there's there's quite a few countries in the world that would take that kind of approach and even if it isn't enshrined in law even the, the cultural attitudes you know can be quite yeah. oppressive even if, if the legislation isn't isn't there behind that uh, you mentioned consent there as well how do the young people feel about teaching that because consent is not newish in Ireland anymore but we're not quite I think a decade into it and at the start when we introduced consent workshops there's such massive backlash and it was like oh no this is terrible and you're going to just say all men are rapists and it's going to be all awful and of course it wasn't like that at all now they seem to be quite normalized and it's just like a regular thing and there's not there's not that same stigma or um shame attached to consent workshops do you find that the young people are like ready and willing to engage with, with all the nuances of consent or how do you find that um yeah, it, it does. It's 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 still a, a bit of a touchy subject sometimes um, because it might be new, but also because sometimes people feel that it's oversaturated, this this conversation. And it very often tends to go into, oh, but then do I have to sign a contract every time I want to kiss someone? Or do I want to, um, do we really have to have it on paper? Does it have to be so formal? It takes away all of the, the magic of the experience. Um, 
And those arguments are based, if you ask me, on the idea that consent has to be the absolute bare minimum, right? You have to get someone to say no. When actually, if you ask me, consent should be based on someone being very happy and, and enthusiastic and excited to be with you and to do whatever you're about to engage with with you, right? Why, why do we make it so that the, the standard is so low? Um, and I think if you approach it in that way, you know, about the fun side of it and actually being together with someone who wants to do something with you, that that's such a, a more fun uh, conversation to have and, and so much more fun to talk about. And if you look at that side, I think that is something that is growing and that people sort of starting to realize, but we also do have quite a, a far road ahead. And I don't want to sound cynical, but that's just the way it is with a lot of these topics, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Those conversations about, you know, do we have to put, put it on paper? Like that leads to the creation of things like consent apps. And I think was it a Dutch app um, a few months ago and they said, yeah. you know, you both have to take a box and the consent is valid for 48 hours. And it's like, that's not how consent works like no. <laughs> it's not a one and done thing and you can do anything you want in the 24 hours but it, it's it just feels like it's so misguided of you know we will formalize this and that's consent isn't like may I now put my left hand on your left shoulder and you know it's that's not consent and that's no that, no exactly it's not how anyone even teaches consent anyway <laughs> No, and that is, this is exactly one of the examples why I advocate for young people's participation so much, right? Because this is also, I feel, this notion is very much based on um, older people's experiences and older people's thoughts of how young people interact with each other and what they might need. And so the answer is like, okay, well, if, they, if we want to integrate consent in young people's lives, let's create an app where they can both tick a box and then they'll both have said, I want to have sex which also it doesn't work because if during the sex you want to back out, then you'll have signed the thing anyway. And so you have nothing yeah, to stand it's on. It's never going to work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so if you really go about these rules and these policies by, by asking young people, what do you think? What is something that, that you talk about with your friends and, and that is a problem and how could we go about that? That would have really solved so many of the issues right away. Um, and that is also how you create a little bit of a, a bridge, right, with young people and keep them involved and also make them feel like they have agency over those decisions that are being made about them and their futures. And I, I think yeah, the agency part is really, really important, like something like that consent. So if you have to like buy into it and you have to believe and, and you know, recognize it is about bodily autonomy and respect it's not a formality that has to be part it's just part of sex I suppose for that do you notice any any gender differences in in approaches when it comes to things like um consent or um any kind of sex education like do people of one particular gender really really want something else and people of different genders want something completely different or is it a universal thing across the board um I, I don't think there's an, yeah, a universal answer to that. And I think it's also very personal and that people, um, yeah, it, it really depends on the person and the situation. Um, and I haven't spoken to to enough people uh, that, that identifies queer to really give an answer to that. So I'd, I'd be hesitant to, to make my yeah, assumptions sure. there. No, that's fine. That's fine. Well, and you do work in gender equality as well as, as part of your job, your, your amazing sounding job. I'm so jealous. This is great. But <laughs> what does that part involve? Um, 
I work a lot with, with the diplomacy team uh, at the ministry when we talk about gender equality. And so that really means mainstreaming gender equality and women's rights into a lot of the work that we do. Uh, so a couple of times a year, there'll be a big UN commission um, where you know we might be talking about sustainable development. And then what that team tries to do and what I'm a part of as well is really putting in then the gender lens and saying, okay, well, how does sustainable development affect women or how can women um, and, and how can gender equality benefit sustainable development? And you know, as we move forward to a more um, sustainable world, what do women specifically need, right? Because that is sometimes, or no, very often, a thing that is left out of the question. Um, and that is also, for example, why the Women, Peace and Security agenda exists. It's based on um, a Security Council Resolution 1325 from a couple of years ago. Um, and that agenda is based on the idea, on, a, on the fact actually, that women experience peace and security and war very differently than men do. And that they have different needs, right? Men tend to go to the to the war front. Women tend to take care of the kids and have to take over um, men's chores and and work, and that really affects the dynamics of a, of a country. And so, that is a factor. That lens is so essential and so indispensable to all of the work that we do. Um, and so that is why, why I also work on that, because where you talk about gender and talk about women's rights, you also have to talk about young women's rights and about girls' rights. And those are things that we tend to forget generally. Um, and that is why I also sit there to always be like, okay, well, we're talking about women, we have to talk about young women. Um, and I am quite proud that the Netherlands is already taking kind of a, um, yeah, a step forward in that and, and really leads the way, uh, but we also have a long way to go still. Yeah, that, the same answer for everything to do with sex. It's like you've done a little bit, but there's there's a lot more to go. So you're, exactly. you're in the average there. So yeah, I suppose is, that statistic, I, um, oh, I don't know, I read it ages ago and it was like, if, if a woman can start controlling her fertility um, and can control her family planning, the whole like country can change and like the whole country can get out of poverty and can get you know um just find, like economically benefit everything benefits sustainability yeah. comes in um absolutely everything and you just think it seems small on paper but like the impact of being able to control your fertility is huge and impacts generations and literally impacts the entire world and that sounds quite dramatic yeah. but the reality of that is what you're saying what your work is yeah, this is the it's true. It's so true. It is so true. And um, I always like to think also about the link between sexual and reproductive health and rights and gender equality. And I really see them as, as two things that are so interlinked and so interconnected. Um, because if you think about it, if you're a woman and you can make those decisions about your life, right, when you want to have kids, how many kids you want and with whom, you're gonna need contraceptives for that and also information about how to use them. And if you don't have that, then you also can't plan if you want to go to university or to school or educate yourself to go find a job or stay at home or find someone else. There's so many decisions that depend on your decision-making power over your own body um, that yeah, you're completely right. It really can, can turn around an entire country if you allow women to make those those choices about themselves and, and about their own lives. Um, and it really, you know, it, it's gonna, it, if you have kids, when you actually don't want to have them, you're gonna be sitting at home while you might be working and adding to your country's economy. Um, 
And that's also why it's so important, for example, when we talk about domestic violence, that there's always a financial support component in there. There are programs that are trying to get women out of uh, an abusive relationship when they, they might have been in that relationship for four years and they get the question, why don't you just leave? And I can guarantee you that almost always the answer there will be, I don't have another option because I am financially dependent on my male counterpart, right? So those are some, so many things that are so interlinked with each other um, that I, I really can't see them apart from, from each other. Yeah, absolutely. And having worked in refugees for seven years, it, we definitely see that, you know, of, of women who are, especially um, women with children, because it's like, how, do, how am I going to feed my kids? Or do I want to exactly. bring my kids through homeless services? Or, you know, maybe the partner doesn't abuse the kids, but they abuse the, the, the person and then says, oh, well, I, I'll suck it up for the sake of my kids not having to deal with this. Like, it's so complicated. And the whole... Why, why don't you just leave? It's so victim blaming and it really shows that that deep lack of understanding of the nuances and complexities of domestic violence and even naming it as violence. Like that's a really hard thing to do in itself mm-hmm. for, for the person who's in it. But um, yeah, like you said, there's there's so much, I suppose, to that. Um, I think, do you think that young people have more of awareness now of things like domestic violence and dating abuse and, and things like this? I think we definitely talk about it more and that it's it's definitely sort of opening up the conversation. At least that's something that I see in my own friend circles and, and with my own um, uh, friends and generation. Um, it, it is still a difficult topic to talk about. And, you know, we always talk about it as, as it's something that doesn't really happen to us, that happens to other people and that there's no way that it might happen to you. When actually I think the statistics say that over 30% of European women have have experienced um, a some form of sexual violence, right? So that is just insane. And I think as those facts are coming out and as we we talk about it, um, the conversation is starting to sort of open up. And especially among women, I can tell that that is something that we talk about with each other as well. Um, I think, yeah, among women it happens, among men, it's a bit of a, a bigger situation and that's also problematic because it really makes it uh, the woman's responsibility to deal with it, right? And it really makes it a woman's thing um, to fight when I really would say that it is it's, uh, a thing that we all should be caring about. So yeah, it's opening up um, slowly, which is a good thing, but we also have to keep on going and, and really not think that it's already uh, going in the right direction because we still have, yeah, a yeah. very long way to go and I keep saying this I know I I say that all the time as well print it on a t-shirt or something of like we've more to go but even you know like Ireland has been so slow at at, at accepting things like domestic violence go on and even like naming so many different forms of domestic violence because it's not just physical abuse but you know there's research out last year that said something like 50% of young women in Ireland had experienced dating abuse now Mm. I would have liked to have seen that the um the research being a bit more inclusive because obviously trans people are at quite high risk of violence quite a lot of the time. Mm. So I would have liked it to be broken down then as well into straight relationships and queer relationships and things like this. But um, unfortunately, it didn't do that. But 50 percent like yeah. that is shocking, you know, and it's it just it gets a bit depressing. And I think like, would you advocate for someone who works in this area to have sex education in in schools 
ad- addressing this topic, obviously in a very age appropriate term. But, you know, if you have 18 year olds already experiencing abuse, it, it's it's like it, it does need to be part of, of the sex education curriculum, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think the question that that people should ask then in a kind of uh, curriculum like that is why do people do that? Where does it come from? What is what is at the root of that abuse? Because we also know that the majority of abusers are people that are actually close to the victim, right? Or to the survivor, I should say. Uh, and and that brings up another question. Why do people do this? And then what happens? What is at the root of, of this abuse and how can we prevent it? Um, and I really think that that also lies in comprehensive sexuality education. Where on one hand, you talk about boundaries, you talk about what it is okay to do, um, uh, but also not okay, and how to talk to someone about, you know, I actually don't like you doing this, can you please stop? And on the other hand, to respect those boundaries and to not cross them for someone else um, and to have mutual respect because it also stems from um, from a feeling of superior, superiority and a feeling of being able to do something like that to someone. Right, so all of those things really come back to to education and starting at a really young age. And when we talk about sexuality education about at a young age, a lot of people start hearing alarm bells and say, well, but are we gonna talk to five-year-olds about sex? No, that's not what it, that means. It just means that you talk about life skills and that you talk about what it means to listen to one another. And then when they get a little bit older and it starts to become a more relevant topic, then yes, you can start talking about what sex actually is and and but that's such a small thing among all of the things that actually come into comprehensive sexuality education absolutely yeah and we had a review um or a call for a review of our sex education was it last year or the year before i lose track of the years now under covid i think 2019 um and part of the the backlash to that was people saying oh they're gonna they're gonna show porn to children and they're gonna teach four-year-olds how to masturbate and it's like no like none of that is actually the case so we it's hard to get past sometimes those I suppose reactionary measures of people going oh my god you're gonna do this to children and stuff and how do you think then you bring parents and teachers and um, adults on board with comprehensive sex sex education that does address all these things but that might be very scary for people who don't understand what that kind of sex education looks like yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it always really helps to show the concrete results, right? And to really show, well, we're not showing your kids porn and we're not teaching them how to have sex. And we're doing this because research shows that in ways X, Y, and Z, this actually benefits your child in so many ways they go beyond anything relationship related or sex related. Um, and of course, you have to be mindful of, of a cultural background and of religious background. You always have to do it with a, a degree of, of mutual respect, right? But at the same time, if the numbers don't lie and it actually shows that kids that, that learn about setting boundaries at a very young age are more respectful to one another a couple of years after, for me, that would be enough of an argument to really let it go through. And if you really have to, you know, if you really need to, you can show the parents what the material is that you're showing to them and that you can tell, well, actually it's about setting your boundaries, like I said, and, and telling other people how you feel about things and, and dealing with your emotions as well and with your feelings. It's so much more than than porn and sex and, and autonomy. Um, I said autonomy, yeah, autonomy as well and anatomy. Um, 
so it's it's tough and it's always a difficult conversation but definitely not impossible absolutely not absolutely not and and thankfully we do have a lot of that research out there to say like it is actually working and and things like that so so you as like you know you're you're a long-term activist and you describe yourself as a feminist as well so and you've been doing this great job which is fantastic if if you were to design like you know we have the universal bill of human rights but if you were to design your own universal bill of sexual rights what would that look like in in reality for everybody this is an amazing question. I wish I wish I, I got questions like this every time. <laughs> um, let's see. I I very often struggle with uh, being a white woman uh, fighting for these things. I live in the Netherlands, grew up here, always lived here, and so um, I advocate for all of these issues from a position of privilege, and and that is sometimes uh quite quite tough right because you want to do the right thing and and you're bound to make mistakes um and that's why i also like to sort of make space and 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 give away the space that i have to people that i actually can talk about that uh from their own experience um so i would always advocate for uh an intersectional approach to sexuality always right and that we have to have extra um, um attention for people that deal with all these different multiple and intersecting ways of discrimination, right? Because like I said, a woman of color is always going to have more struggles and and more difficulty claiming her sexual and reproductive health and rights than I will ever have to deal with in my life. Um, I'm also not queer. And so that is also something that adds to that intersectionality. So I really think that, um, yeah, being aware of all those, very you know intersecting ways of, of discrimination has to be at the top of the list um also free contraceptives for everyone adequate uh of choice anything that they might want to um that would be great uh free education and adequate and and um complete education as well on sexuality and you know to even make safe sexual pleasure a human right as well and to talk about sexual pleasure and to not only have to talk about the the 10 ways in which to prevent uh an sci or a pregnancy but actually that you can have a nice conversation with anyone really about what it means to have sexual pleasure and to and to sort of also demand sexual pleasure for yourself especially as a woman because don't even get me started about the the orgasm gap right it's insane um those would be some of the things that i really would want to to see and yeah to just always have nice friendly um satisfying sexual experiences whenever you want whenever whenever you can I mean they're they're all excellent places to start so yeah happy days I think I think what you're saying the intersectional stuff is really really important to bring in and even you know recognizing like things like disability and and you know it, it can be there's a lot of disabled people who live in poverty because the systems are just not great and um you know if you have to spend a lot of money on contraception it's like the, the choice comes down to contraception or food or contraception mm-hmm. or rent and it's like that's not okay for for anybody and I know at the moment um 
in Ireland and this you know would be amazing if any listeners wanted to do this we are reviewing our abortion access at the moment because we only just had legal abortion in 2018 in the referendum but a lot of disabled people have said it's actually really um, exclusionary you have to make one appointment with a GP and then have a three day cooling off period and then go back to your GP and GP visits here can vary if you don't have a, a card um, 50 to 60 euro give or take so that's a lot of money and then transport and getting there and stuff like that um or if you know the, the laws don't cover everybody at the moment so people still have to travel um for abortion access and obviously if you're disabled that's also extremely you know quite difficult so i think you know and then if you add in other intersections like a young disabled person or disabled person of color or where english isn't your first language i think when we we think about things like that you just realize how complicated it can be it's not really like a lot of sex education is like oh yay orgasms here you go and you know there's just all this serious stuff behind it that we need to really make sure we're, we're taken in to be as, as I don't, realistic I suppose isn't mm-hmm. it, as possible yeah so, yeah yeah 100% and that is once more what my mandate is really all about making sure that that meaningful participation of all those groups is really taken up in the policy making and decision making because you you can only pretend to make sustainable and good policies if you don't involve those people and actually listen to their uh to their experiences um and as hard as i try to represent those people and to represent people that have other experiences with srhr and gender equality than i do i also would be lying to myself if I said that I, I did that perfectly, right? And I try and I can only use my position to do so. Um, but that's why I also, sometimes I get asked to be on on panels to talk about, um, I don't know, uh, the, the situation of reproductive rights in let's say Mozambique. I've never been to Mozambique. I, I haven't spoken to someone who has had to have an abortion in Mozambique. Why would I be the person then to, go over there and talk about the situation instead of an actual Mozambican person who can go there and talk about their experience. And that's what I always try to push for because the title, it's very long, very nice, and I and I love the job. But it's it's yeah, like I said, I would be lying if if I would say that I really represented everyone um equally because I can't do that. I and I and I can't do that as a white woman. Yeah, absolutely. And that's okay as well. You know, it's it's like there should be space at the table for everybody. Um, yeah. Like you said, we, we have, you know, a way to go when it comes to that also as well. But I think recognizing I'm not trying to speak for absolutely everybody. And one, ways, one way of representing sex ed is not going to work for absolutely everybody. And yeah, I think that's really important to remember. Um, what Going forward, what's next for your role? Is there any post-COVID exciting plans that that you have uh, whenever COVID will finally go away? (laughs) I wish there were, uh, because normally also this role is really focused on going to places, right? And and really talking to people um, and having an intimate conversation about their experiences so that I can bring that back with me to The Hague over here in the Netherlands. Unfortunately, that hasn't been uh, a possibility at all up to now. Um, I'm in the position until September and then I hand over to uh, a new youth ambassador. So I'm hoping that by September, maybe we can um, uh, go on on a little trip ourselves and do a handover like that. But that's just also for my own perspective and uh, and to keep a little bit sane. Um, if not, that's fine. I've learned how to handle Zoom as well. 
Um, but we have a couple of really fun things coming up. There's the, uh, the UN Women Generation Equality Forum that's coming up in Paris, which I'm uh, a coordinating part of, which is really fun. Some other UN things that are going on as well. And, you know, things just keep going dynamically and changing always. And there's always enough work to do. Uh, too much, yeah, I would really say. I can uh, so <laughs> there's never a dull moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's also really fun and really exciting. And it really gives me a lot of energy to be able to work on these issues and to really see that there's so much work that needs to be done. Also gives me the the fuel, right, that I need to keep going because there's always another reason to keep going. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot a lot to do still. Absolutely, yeah. And and is there space for people to like volunteer or you know from different countries or can can they get involved with this kind of work that you're doing and as a support or is that an option? Definitely, yes, definitely. I am always I always benefit from other people's experiences and to hear about what they what they know and it's it's actually quite hard to get in touch with people if you don't know them or if you don't know how to reach them or where they are um so definitely i love to hear all sorts of stories and see where i can maybe use my position um to bring them in or also just learn from them on a personal level so yeah definitely uh if anyone has any ideas please do get in touch and and i'd love to, to have a chat Perfect. Yeah. And where can people find you if, if they want to follow along with the work you're doing or get in contact? Yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at YouthAmbSRHR and on Instagram at YouthAmbassadorSRHR. And I read my DMs very regularly. So that would probably be the best way to, to get in touch. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, the podcast is listened to around the world. So that's open to everybody to get involved. And because, yeah, sex education is so different around around the world and so many different ways you can approach this topic that, yeah, even if you set out to research it all, you'd be there for quite a long time, I think, <laughs> before yeah, you got to the 100%. end of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lisa, it's been fantastic talking to you. And it just it does fill me with hope that like someone is doing this job and you are an absolute natural at doing it. So I'm glad it's you, um, even if I'm a little bit jealous of <laughs> the great <laughs> job that you have. Um, but it, it's just fantastic to see, you know, young people being listened to and being heard. And, and it is like I know it sounds dramatic sounding, but it is life changing and life saving for, you know, when people have access to their sexual health rights or their reproductive rights and things like that so I think you know keep on with the good work because it literally is changing the world and you know that's what we want to see out there so no thank you so so much for doing that work um and thanks Mel for chatting to me today thanks so much for having me on the show it's been great and I I really do love talking about my work uh and the urgency never stops right so I'm really happy to be able to to talk to you about this and share a little bit of my work absolutely well thank you for taking time out of your very busy day (laughs) for chatting to me fantastic um and thanks to all my listeners for listening in as well like I said um you know if get in touch with Lisa if you have any ideas or comments about how you can improve sex education that would be fantastic and drop me a dm if you want to chat or reach out about the podcast it's um aklo west podcast on twitter or instagram like I said at the start of the show if you want to support via patreon that's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack um or you can pop over to apple and rate and review and all of that would be super appreciated and i will chat to you next time bye